The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Yeah. Can you hear me? Fantastic. So thank you for having me here. I remember uh, last time I was here, um, I had um, three former prisoners with me, Pat and Philip and uh, Antonio. <clears throat> and I, I, got, I got this gig somewhat late, so I couldn't uh, marshal the troops, but they, they told me to say hello, and, and they're doing well. So, uh, happy Easter, and uh, kind of a special day with this gentle falling of rain on everything that's so green. And uh, (coughs) Easter, of course, related to the east where the sun rises, spring, spring. And Eostre was a, um, a mother goddess of the Saxon people in Northern Europe. And so it's a, a feast of um, life um, awakening and also of light that is being made manifest in what's green. And if you have gone in your garden, you can see that it's very green this year. Lots of weeds to pull. Um, so it's a good time to um, plant and plan. Word plan comes from planting. Um, and Aostra um, seems to also be related to estrogen. The word estrogen is the female hormone. So it's a fertile, fertile time. And I had a, a Sufi teacher once, a, a long time ago, and um, he had a very interesting, provocative Easter message. He said the message of Easter was to aspire to die before death and resurrect now. Why not? Why wait? All right. So I thought we could maybe explore together a little bit um, about what it means, what it might mean to die before death. The resurrection part sort of help, it happens naturally, right? If, if you do a thorough completion, you have a good beginning right there. Um, so um, the sort of three aspects that, that I like about this message of dying before death and resurrecting now. One, it's, it's, it's direct and personal, right? It's not sort of something you do once a year and the gods do it, but you don't. Um, two is, um, it takes out the middleman entirely. Uh, you're charged somewhat as a mystic to find this direct relationship with the divine. And, uh, you know, uh, be an active agent in your own awakening. And then, lastly, it's attractive uh, because it's radical. Um, Why wait until you kick the bucket? 
So you get to recognize now that it's all transition. You know how we speak sometimes when we ask each other how we're doing. Well, I'm, I'm in transition. Right? I'm moving from one relationship out to the other, or I, I don't have a job, and I'm in transition. Of course, if we look closely, that's always the case. Right? Kind of that bumper sticker I've seen that says, um, if you're not pissed, then you're not paying attention. Of course, <clears throat> of course, as Buddhists, we'd say, you know, if you're pissed, you're not paying attention. But, but they, they can be both true, right? It's a little bit like that with, you know, being in transition too. It's like if 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 you're not noticing you're in transition, then you're not paying attention, right? So the word uh, a bardo uh, relates to a uh, Tibetan teaching as described in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And uh, they deal with instructions that are given when uh, you're transitioning uh, out of the realm of life into the realms of death. And the word bardo itself means in between. And the notion with the bardos is that you don't necessarily turn to them uh, when you have good reason to fear for the end of your life. But did you do it beforehand? Because, uh, you know, it's challenging to die. Sometimes you have to take medicine. Sometimes you have a hard time concentrating. So, um, the bardos, when you engage them, are a, a real opportunity. It's kind of a heightened opportunity to find a gateway into uh, a deeper realization of uh, awakening. So uh, when the body falls away, of course, this is a big shock to the consciousness. It's gotten pretty used to being incarnated. And when it falls away, it's a big shock. So you might ask, you know, what if the body falls away can guide this consciousness? And um, it would make sense to uh, imagine, I'm choosing my words carefully, I don't remember these things. So. But it would make, choose, uh, 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 make sense to imagine that um, what comes next to guide the consciousness is whatever you've practiced, you know, what, what strongest imprint have you gathered that when the physical falls away can guide the consciousness. Um, and that includes, of course, your bad habits as well. Right? But it might also include your uh, habits of mindfulness. So, um, as part of the bardos, there's some instructions that are whispered in the ear of the dying person, or sometimes, you know, when, even when there's no heartbeat anymore. So I want to read those to you. So close your eyes for a moment. Imagine somebody whispering in your ear. So this is from the Tibetan Book of Dead by Evans Wenz. It goes as follows. 
The visions you experience while transitioning exist within your consciousness. The forms they take are determined by your past attachments, your past desires, your past fears, your past karma. These visions have no reality outside your consciousness. No matter how frightening some of them may seem, they cannot hurt you. Just let them pass through your consciousness. They will all pass in time. No need to become involved with them. No need to become attracted to the beautiful or sexual ones or repulsed by the frightening ones. No need to be attached to them at all. Just let them pass like clouds passing through an empty sky. Fundamentally, they have no more reality than this. Remember these teachings. Remember the clear light, the pure, bright, shite, whining light of your own nature. It is deathless. Remember the clear light, the pure, clear, white light from which everything in the universe comes, to which everything in the universe returns, the original nature of your own mind. The natural state of the universe unmanifest. Let go into this clear light. Trust it. Merge with it. It is your own true nature. It is home. So when there's this streaming that happens outside of the physical, all these impressions that come up, what we find through the bardos is that the instruction in the bardos as to how to die are uh, very similar as to how to live. And they are really the mindfulness teachings. Um, What the bardo also says here, that uh, it literally says that what you experience as actual has no reality outside of your consciousness. What you experience as actual, as real, has no reality outside of your consciousness. Uh, it's a little frightening, right? But then also very liberating. I like to think it's where really good singing and dancing can come from, right? So dying before death is to do the work that helps us wake up from this dream. It's a dream. So there's a, a number of things that I dreamt up in gathering um, what these things may be. One of them um, of course, is to, is to learn how to listen. Uh, I had a, a friend, a mentor, Father Charlie, who had this part of his uh, uh, wedding ceremony when he married people. When he took them through the whole ceremony and then uh, towards the end, he would uh, 
put their arms around them, his arms around them, and cup their ears, bless their ears, and kind of pull them in so that his forehead touched their foreheads. And he would whisper to them, and he'd say, of course, what you're really doing here is um, you're making a commitment to learn how to hear one another. And um, to understand that hearing the other person is, is a path that is part of liberating yourself. And so this is a blessing on your ears because you're going to need all the blessing you can get. <laughs> it's good if you can laugh about that. Um, and if you understand that and commit to it, um, then you may kiss each other for all of us to see that you've made that commitment and are on that path. So I always thought that was beautiful to see him do that. But of course it also infers that we learn how to hear and listen to ourselves. Greatly facilitates listening to someone else. There's a way of listening to ourselves as we do our practice where we uh, genuinely uh, connect to ourselves as organisms. It's it's almost like nature has its own template that that, uh, we've grafted Buddhism on. You know, there's an inherent capacity of this body for wisdom. It's, it's, it's wired in. And so when we uh, notice our breath, we notice the sensations, don't we? we? We notice the feelings of the movement of the breath. The feelings of the movement of the breath. And that's at the heart of the experience. When we understand that perhaps, you know, uh, the meaning in our lives can be found right there in our functioning. In the way this body sends signals to orient us, right? There's our emotional life and there's our mental life and I think there's 17,000 thoughts a day that we have. And you can't turn it off. And so, really tuning into the sensations of, of our living helps to integrate the traffic between emotional and mental and sensory awareness. In prison, uh, the verb is you're, you're held in prison. I had a youngster once who kept coming back. And I said, man, what's up with you coming back here all the time? And he kind of looked around and didn't want anybody else to hear it. And he said, you know, it's better to have be wanted by the police and have nobody want you. And it's better to be held in prison than to have nobody hold you. So we're held in prison because our own container didn't work. The anguish spilled over. You can either end up in a mental hospital 
uh, or in the prison. We put more money in our prisons than our schools, so you end up in prison. But what it infers is, is okay, so we need to build a container that um, can hold our experience. And really, when you look, every thought that we have is a movement of our muscles, including our most sacred convictions. You, you, we speak of that in language, too. You hold our opinions, or you hold the thought. And if you pay attention when you're meditating, you find yourself thinking, and you scan the body for finding some contraction, and breathe into that, the, the holding goes, and then the thought goes in that order. So, when we meditate, uh, we t- tune into that self-regulating part of the organism that uh, settles first, right? And then uh, connects. So, doing that is letting go of a lot of illusion which could be seen as dying before death. Um, of course, uh, uh, what is also helpful is to uh, attend uh, uh, at a person that's dying. Uh, we all get to do that at some point. But we do get to choose how deeply we witness that. And... Uh, it's, a, it's an, a, an incredible uh, awakening to be around that. Uh, I, I think nothing calls out the truth uh, uh, clearer than, than to attend to a person crossing over. There's a, a, a poem I'd like to read by uh, W.S. Merwin. And uh, he, it's called for the anniversary of my death. You know, we celebrate our birthday, right? Same day, every year. Of course, there's also an anniversary of the day that we die. We just don't know what day it is yet. But every year we pass it, don't we? <laughs> every year, without knowing it, I have passed the day. And the last fires will wave to me, and the silence will set out. Tireless traveler, like the beam of a lightless star. Then I will find myself no longer. Then I will no longer find myself in life as in a strange garment, this human body. Surprised at the earth. and the love of one woman, and the shamelessness of men. As today, riding after three days of rain, hearing the wren sing and the falling seas, and bowing, not knowing to what, and bowing, not knowing to what. It's a poignant notion, right? That day that we pass every year. Uh, other qualities 
and I think somewhat what these qualities have in common is they tend to pull us outside of ourselves enough that the, the illusion of ourselves as separate beings is, uh, uh, has a chance to come undone. Uh, gratefulness is, is another practice that, that helps with doing that. Brother David Steinel Rost said about gratefulness that uh, you take what is given and you uh, touch it with your gratefulness, which turns it into a gift. So what is given is any circumstance you're in. And through your gratefulness, you can turn it into a gift. You don't just do the gratefulness at the end of a process, you know, when you've gotten what you wanted and you go, okay, right? Now I'm grateful. But you do it up front. You kind of make life shine up front by touching it with your gratefulness as a practice. You may, you know, you may feel grumpy. It's Sunday morning, it's Easter, it's raining. <laughs> but you practice. Uh, being of service, fantastic path to knowledge. Very sophisticated, not, not just sort of you know, a good thing to do. You know, I, I, I've been given a lot and give some back. Way beyond that. Way beyond that. Um, a lot of our programs are set up in prison where the men get to serve. Uh, they get to learn how to teach the material and they have uh, apprentices. And one of them, um, happy to say he's out now, was a... Um, a Crips uh, shot caller from the, the, the L.A. gang there. Uh, his nickname used to be Warlord. And we're in uh, a, a class on violence called uh, Guiding Rage into Power. Get a grip, right? And uh, he's like waving his arm, he's waving his arm. I said, what? He said, I get it, I get it. I said, what? He said, hurt people, hurt people. He said, we lash out from the pain that we haven't processed. You know? And then we dole it out. And then his apprentice, this rather big African-American guy, 265 pounds, that was in there for domestic violence, who is now a certified facilitator in working with court-ordered men who have committed domestic violence, waved his hand and said, true, true, but you know what? I said, no. He said, heal people, heal people. And it sort of became the motto that described the whole thing we were doing there. Hurt people, hurt people, and heal people, heal people. And there's a movement of service that moves as a verb through those actions. Of course, being in nature, right? Getting out of your... <clears throat> sitting in front of the screens that we all suffer from so much, these things. And, and noticing, just like letting, letting it fall away and, and letting it come into you and just noticing all the different colors of green, for example, out there. And the magic of how it all interacts. 
and how we're part of that interaction, right? We're an event, really, more than um, <clears throat> an entity. Everything, every breath we breathe in has atoms in it of every breath that has been breathed before, including all the people that have died. So your next breath has, for example, an atom of the, the dying Christ on the cross. And, and, and of Elizabeth Taylor as well. And so, uh, that's pretty amazing to behold. Um, you know, and then this amazing exchange of us breathing out carbon dioxide to everything that's green that needs that, and then it breathes back oxygen to us. So we're an event, we're an interaction. We're, we don't just sort of have little nervous systems, like ding, 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 a room full of them. We're part of one. And um, we're slowly uh, awake, waking up to that. Sometimes... Uh, the hard way, you know, I think of the Fukushima nuclear disaster. But we're waking up to it. Um, We also uh, have a chance to understand that uh, we don't have to believe these thoughts. It's a lot of work, right, if you have 17,000 of them a day. We can choose our thoughts. And same with our preferences, right? We can give up the, the, the belief that being happy comes from having your preferences fulfilled. And so learning that and practicing that all relates to dying before death. Um, and as we, you know, begin to uh, express our true nature, this is what Suzuki Roshi called our sitting practice, expressing our true nature. So as, as we learn how to do that more, uh, we can come to rest. Uh, for a lot of us, we struggle with this, you know, what somebody called the NQR syndrome. It, it's never quite right. And it's a habit. It, it might be right, actually. But we have this habit of feeling it, it isn't quite right right now. You know, I, if I practiced more, if I had more time for retreats, you know, if I was in a different relationship, um, if I wasn't so alone, uh, if I had a different job. So it's, it, it's never quite right. And, and when we rest in the truth of our experience, um, we get to uh, a feeling of trusting. That is the medicine for that never quite right experience. Trusting. Not because um, 
there are all sorts of clear signs that uh, you can trust, but because you choose to, you, know, you do, you trust anyway. There's a little uh, poem about from Kabir. Let's see if I can find it. Yeah. He says, I talk to my inner lover and I say, why such rush? We sense that there's some sort of spirit that loves birds and animals and the ants, perhaps the same one who gave a radiance to you in your mother's womb. Is it logical? You would be walking around entirely orphaned now. The truth is you turned away yourself and decided to go into the dark alone. Now you are tangled up in others and have forgotten what you once knew. And that is why everything you do has some weird sense of failure in it. The truth is you turned away yourself, Kabir says, and decided to go into the dark alone. It's a sobering poem. Um, but it also hints at the, the possibility of coming back, of, of returning to connection. And um, being instructed that way. So in the prison, we 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 work in different ways with with this material. Um, we talk about karma as what goes around comes around. And we talk about two kinds of pain, wherein in the first kind of pain, you learn how to go in through and out. You, you sit in the fire, you burn clean and leave ashes. And uh, no, no, nobody does it alone. And you take bites, you know, you don't do the whole full thing in one session, right? And uh, the other kind of pain, secondary pain, karmic pain, emerges from um, avoiding processing the first kind of pain. And we do this uh, cycle on the board where we actually sort of draw a lifeline. So, you know, what happened when you um, did what you did that made you come to prison? And often it's something like, um, I mean, it's different things, but often it's something like, well, my mother died or somebody died and I started acting out and getting high and um, then I... um, had a car accident and somebody got wounded or killed and I ended up in prison and and then my wife divorced me and I acted out on that and, and it's this like cycle, right, of cause and effect. And when it comes around, that original pain is still there to deal with. 
And we often sort of count, the, if it's a new group, we count the amount of years that they've served. Last time we did that, we had 403 years in the room. And then we counted the amount of time that they were in what we call the moment of imminent danger, which is the moment between anger and violence, or the moment between craving and using, and not being aware of that moment. And that moment could be 30 seconds, could be two minutes. I think the longest I heard was somebody who had four hours until the gas tank was empty because the police were after him. <laughs> but uh, it's usually a short moment. And so these guys have lost that moment. When we added up those moments, we had 43 minutes and four minutes in three years on the other side. So the notion of learning how to sit in the fire and learn how to uh, process these feelings uh, seems important. And, um, and so they get interested in how do you do that. And so we, uh, we have this practice of sitting in the fire, which isn't just sort of, you know, manning up and toughening it out. It's really this practice. You know, of on some level deeply understanding that the cause and the origin of this feeling lies within me. Whatever this feeling is. It's a bit like the bardo saying, uh, you know, what you experience as actual has no reality outside your consciousness. So you take responsibility and you understand, uh, there's one guy, Richard, who loves quoting Viktor Frankl on this, on this topic. Viktor Frankl was a psychologist who survived the death camps in the Second World War. And he speaks of the last human freedom. And the last human freedom is that they can take anything away from you. You know, now this speaks to the man in prison, as you might imagine. They can take anything away from you, except one thing, which is the ability you have that no matter what, no matter the time, no matter the circumstance, you can choose your response. You have that freedom to choose your response to whatever is in front of you. And so to cultivate that, And so um, there's a group of the men um, that have achieved the status of what we call leaving prison before you get out. And it's not so, uh, and it strikes me as that that's very much the same as dying before death and resurrecting now, right? Leaving prison before you get out. And, you know, we're all doing time on that issue. It's not that different. Um, and so uh, it's very heartening to know I would imagine uh, that if in all places San Quentin State Prison uh, there's a, a sizable group of men that have dedicated themselves this way and uh, they become change agents and they, they work in their community with the younger prisoners and now when they get out, 
through this new initiative I've created called Inside Out, we, um, uh, I've hired a few to work with challenged youth that um, is on the other side of the pipeline. So we take what was learned on the prison side of the pipeline and apply it with uh, youth often already uh, in, on probation to prevent the famous flow-through. Right? The system eats its young. It's, it's, it's a setup almost. It, not almost, it is. And we've also uh, uh, do more and more presentations where we take some of these men and, and the victims we work with on the road and, and give talks. And, and quite often, um, these talks turn out in, turn into sort of an Oprah show. <laughs> you know, it's like a community clinic because um, there's so much violence in this culture. You know, there'll be people raising their hands saying, yeah, my father killed my mother, you know, or my son killed my stepson. And, uh, and, and, and they're so hardened by the work we do on restorative justice that it starts to just spill out in the room. Um, with Gil's help, I'm happy to say, Gil's been in and, and, and has brought the uh, chaplain training. There's a few of them here, I think, um, into the prison. And so Gil is helping me kind of set up a little tour of giving Dharma talks in, uh, to sanghas and looking for volunteers that... Um, are willing to learn how to teach meditation in prison. And so we're doing that across the state, and a lot of these prisons are rather removed, or in the boonies. Um, but we're trying to find, you know, sitting groups that are within driving distance. And, and so um, I'm very grateful to Gil uh, for his support in that, in, with that notion that initiative. And it uh, looks like in, in June we'll uh, do a training for people that are interested in doing so. So um, that's an announcement. That's uh, what do you call that. That's uh, an advertisement. Um, I want to end with reading something. A letter I got in 2000 uh, from a man uh, named Paul. He says, Today I started my 28th year in there. I laughed very hard when I read that you wrote I might as well be a monk. One of the nicknames they call me is the Monk of Trenton or the Smiling Buddha. In 1985 I was in EdSeg, the whole administrative segregation for stabbing a man, and my mentor appeared in the form of a hitman for the Irish mob, who also was a yogi. He gave me a copy of the Anapasana Sutra and convinced me that I could not live my life out of anger and rage. He put me on a hatha yoga routine in place of my martial arts training and had me do pranayama and sitting meditation. The whole letter is worth reading, but... We don't have time for the whole letter. Um, 
So I'll read you this part. He said, For the next two years I didn't come out of my cell except to mop the whole block and all the tears once a day. I gave away all my property except my law and my books. I gave myself up to yoga, pranayama, and meditation. I followed the breath for a long time and practiced mindfulness. Nothing seemed to be happening. Then I realized that the objects of my awareness began to have texture. By texture, I mean depth. This texture is deceptive because it arises from the memory or imagination. Soon the texture reveals clarity. This is a movement to present awareness without the distorting effects of memory or imagination. I don't know if this is what's supposed to happen, but it is what happens with me. It was during this time that people started calling me the monk of Trenton. After two years, I started to take my awareness into the population and into daily life. I soon learned that sitting awareness with no distractions is much different than involved or moving awareness. As I deepened my sitting awareness, it was a struggle to live among constant distraction. This struggle continues to this day. The past year I underwent chemotherapy and lost all focus and the ability to concentrate. I began constant mantra practice to save myself. Now that the chemo is over and my mind has settled, the mantra remains. I'm now learning to meditate all over again. And the mantra gives focus and then drops away. I begin my third life. I look forward to it. I know this is one journey, but it seems like many. This journey I want to study and understand as well as practice. Thank you for sending me books. Paul. So we're out of time. It goes fast.